here at Good Shepherd. We've been studying the Abraham narrative in the book of Genesis ever since May. And today we've reached the final sermon in the series, the final passage in the Abraham narrative. Our second Bible reading is Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldar. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishmar, Dumar, Massa, Hadad, Tamar, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedemar. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered, gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Please do keep that page open during the sermon so we can all look closely at what God is saying to us in his word. Let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those ancient words. A prayer based on Psalm 119. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, Amen. After the Chinese Communist Party took control of China in 1949, it became illegal to practice a religion. All religious buildings in China were either destroyed or taken over for a non-religious purpose. By 1953, 
all foreign missionaries had been expelled from the country. At that time, it's estimated that there were just over a million Protestant Christians in China out of a total population of 500 million around 1950. So by 1953, just one out of every 500 Chinese people was a Protestant Christian. It was against the law to practice Christianity. The churches had been shut down and all the missionaries had gone. Humanly speaking, it looked as if the gospel would be squeezed out of existence in China. If you had been one of those Chinese Christians at that time, or one of the missionaries forced to leave, wouldn't you have wondered whether Christianity had any future at all in China? In our Bible passage today, the situation is as challenging for God's people as it was in China in 1953. Abraham has died. Abraham was the great pioneer. God had commanded him to go all the way from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan, and Abraham had gone. God had made extraordinary promises to Abraham. The entire land of Canaan would be given to his offspring. His offspring would become a nation, and that nation would bless the world. Those promises are God's salvation plan for humanity. Now, the promises rest on Isaac. Verse 11 says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Isaac is the new tunnel through which God's blessing will travel. And yet, either side of that middle paragraph where we see the handover to Isaac in verse 11, either side of that central paragraph, there are paragraphs filled with the names of Abraham's other sons and their sons. They're all potential rivals to Isaac. In the ancient world, and we'll explore this more in a moment, inheritance rivalry, rivalry could quickly cause blood to be shed. Isaac's position looks so vulnerable from the human perspective, the outlook for God's salvation plan does not seem bright or secure. But there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 1 that describes God as the one who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. God can be trusted to oversee his salvation plan, even though at this point in time it rests on Isaac and Isaac's position seems so fragile. God can be trusted in the midst of that challenging situation because he is the one who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. There are three themes in this passage, and each one reveals God's power to work out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. The first theme is threats overcome. Threats overcome. Please look down to verse 6. We've just been told in verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. 
Then verse 6 says, But to the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Verse 6 reminds us of something that happened when Isaac was just an infant. At that time, Abraham's other son, Ishmael, was still living in Abraham's household. But on the day when Isaac was weaned, Sarah told Abraham to send Ishmael away. Here's what Sarah says to Abraham in Genesis 21. Cast out this slave woman, meaning Ishmael's mother, Hagar, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The situation is messy, to say the least. The choices that created this mess are found all the way back in chapter 16, and when we looked at that chapter, we saw that the Bible by no means approves of those bad choices that led to this mess. Cast out this slave woman with her son, Sarah says. Abraham is understandably reluctant to do that because Ishmael is his son. But then God intervenes. God says to Abraham, do as Sarah tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Isaac's the one. Isaac's the offspring who will inherit the blessing. He's the tunnel through which God's global blessing will travel. Abraham already knew that, but God has to repeat himself in chapter 21 so that Abraham will protect Isaac from the threat represented by Ishmael. It's rather like that line you hear in Westerns, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. God was effectively saying to Abraham, this household ain't big enough for the both of your sons. It's vital for Abraham to take action so that Isaac and Ishmael won't draw their pistols at high noon and battle each other over the inheritance. By sending Ishmael away, Abraham makes it unmistakably clear that Isaac is the chosen heir. Here in chapter 25, we see Abraham doing exactly the same thing. Abraham's wife Keturah, mentioned in verse 1, has given birth to six sons, and they also must be sent away from Isaac. According to verse 6, Abraham gave them gifts. He didn't leave them destitute, but he did put physical distance between them and Isaac. Isaac's position is so vulnerable that potential rivals to his inheritance are dispatched to another country. The threat was real. Just one generation later, Isaac's son Esau finds out that his brother Jacob is the chosen heir, not him. And as a result, Esau threatens to murder Jacob. And Jacob has to flee. Fast forward one more generation, and we find nine of Jacob's twelve sons plotting to kill their brother Joseph. They've become jealous of him. Genesis 37 verse 4 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. Centuries later, 
Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who was one of Israel's judges. Abimelech doesn't just threaten or plot to kill his brothers. He actually murders 69 of his 70 brothers. One of them escapes. Abimelech wanted to liquidate his rivals in the family so that he would be the chosen successor. Then in the time of King David, his son Adonijah wants to inherit the kingdom. He declares himself king, even though Solomon is King David's appointed heir. That dispute ultimately leads to Adonijah's death. All those cases of brothers feuding with each other show that the threat here in Genesis 25 is real. Abraham wasn't overreacting when he sent the sons of Keturah away from Isaac. The threat was real, and so God worked through Abraham to overcome that threat. But the sending away, recorded in verse 6, doesn't put an end to the threats faced by Isaac. In verse 9, we find that Ishmael comes to bury Abraham alongside Isaac. Verse 9 says, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, Abraham's sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, verse 9 in our passage today is rather like the moment when Jacob meets with Esau, previously murderous Esau, for the first time after Jacob had to flee to another country. Jacob was terrified when he heard that Esau was coming to meet him. Genesis 32 speaks of Jacob's great fear and distress. But Jacob managed to get through that meeting with his life intact. And it's the same with Isaac when he and Ishmael come together in verse 9. The passage ends with a reminder of the ongoing threat. Verse 18 is talking about the descendants of Ishmael. It says, They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. That last line sounds rather menacing, doesn't it? He settled over against all his kinsmen. The kinsmen in this case are Isaac and his family. And all the Bible commentaries agree that settling over against Isaac means... Ishmael and his descendants live in hostility to Isaac and his offspring instead of friendly trade between them and Thanksgiving get-togethers. There's a cold war between Ishmael and his people and Isaac and his people. But God kept the war cold. It didn't break out into bloodshed. God faithfully protects Isaac from all adversities. He's the God who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. It's time for us to move on to the next of the passage's three themes. The first theme was threats overcome. The second is promises kept. Promises kept. Throughout our time in this section of Genesis... We've seen God making promises. We've given a lot of airtime to the three grand promises, people, land, blessing. And we've begun to see the slow, small fulfillment of those three grand promises. 
Eventually, Abraham and Sarah had a son. That son, Isaac, is still living in the land of Canaan. And as we saw in last week's passage, he's now married, bringing hope of further descendants who will ultimately deliver God's promised blessing to the world. But along the way, God has made other promises in addition to the big three. And we see two of those other promises fulfilled in today's passage. The first is God's promise to make Abraham into nations, plural, multiple nations. In chapter 17, verse 6, God had told Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. Nations. It's a promise that catches the eye because usually we think of Abraham as the father of Israel, not the father of multiple nations. But here in Genesis 25, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 2 is a list of the sons that Keturah bore to Abraham, and the fourth name on the list is Midian. His descendants, the Midianites, became a major nation in the ancient Middle East. Then in the third paragraph, verses 12 through 18, we're told about the descendants of Ishmael. And you can see from verse 16 that they have become a nation. Verse 16 says, These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Then on top of the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, that mention of Isaac in verse 11 brings to mind not only the Israelites, who descended from Isaac through his son Jacob, but also the Edomites, who descended from Isaac's other son Esau. That's four nations, the Midianites, Ishmaelites, Israelites, and Edomites. The nation's promise has been fulfilled as early as chapter 25, the chapter that records Abraham's death. The second promise fulfilled in this chapter is God's promise to Hagar. You might remember from earlier in the sermon that she was Ishmael's mother. When Hagar was pregnant with Ishmael, God promised her that her descendants would be too numerous to count. That's chapter 16, verse 10. Later, when Hagar and Ishmael are sent away from Abraham's household, as we were hearing about earlier, God speaks to Hagar once again. He reinforces that earlier promise. In chapter 21, he says to Hagar, lift the boy up. He's talking about Ishmael. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. What a thrilling promise for Hagar to hear, Hagar, the slave woman, lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Here in Genesis 25, we find that God kept his word to Hagar. Genesis 25, verse 16, as we've already seen, uses nation language in connection with Ishmael's descendants. These are the sons of Ishmael, 12 princes, according to their tribes. So the theme of promises kept runs through this passage. Only a God who controls human history can promise something and make it happen. Only a God who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. Let's press on to the third theme. 
blessing sustained. Blessing sustained. Verse 11 says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son. It's such a brief sentence, so easy to skip past it. But it's a precious jewel of a sentence for humanity. Because it shows that God's salvation plan is still ongoing. I will bless you. God had said to Abraham, I will bless you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In today's passage, that plan to bless all nations reaches the next generation. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. There are many pages of salvation history that still need to be turned. But the message of Genesis 25 is that God is able to turn them. Just as he oversees the transition of his salvation plan from Abraham to Isaac, so he will oversee the progress of that plan until all the nations of the world are blessed through the offspring of Abraham. After Isaac, the blessing is passed down to Jacob. Jacob is identified as the offspring who will inherit God's promises to Abraham. Jacob has 12 sons whose descendants become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is the great nation promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 2. And by means of that nation, God has blessed the whole world through Jesus, Israel's saviour king. Jesus is the only person who ever deserved to receive God's blessing. God says of Jesus in Matthew 17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In contrast, the Bible says of everyone else, all other humans, there is no one who does good, not even one. We've often seen that with Abraham himself during this sermon series. Remember his dishonesty in Genesis 12 when he tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. False testimony that he repeats years later, not learning his lesson from before. In Genesis 20, there is no one who does good, not even one. We deserve to receive God's curse, not his blessing. And yet God told Abraham that all nations would be blessed in his offspring. And through Jesus, that salvation plan was fulfilled. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It says this about Jesus. For our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Putting it differently, God cursed Jesus so that we might be blessed. That happened when Jesus died on the cross. Receiving the punishment we deserve in our place so that everyone who trusts in him might go free. And if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus that is something you could do today. You can come to him and he will take the curse you deserve in your place so that you can be eternally blessed. 
Today's passage has a how much more meaning for each generation of God's people. If God can oversee his salvation plan in the days of Isaac, those early vulnerable days, how much more can he oversee his blessing in our own time? That's how each successive generation of God's people should respond to Genesis 25. According to the New Testament, Genesis is one of the books written by Moses. So the first people who heard Genesis 25 would have been the Israelites on their way from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. The message of Genesis 25 for them was that if God can protect Isaac, he'll be able to protect them when they enter into the promised land. God overcame the threats to vulnerable Isaac. He kept his promises to Abraham and Hagar, and he sustained his blessing. If God could do all that in the days of Isaac, how much more will he do those things in the days when Israel arrived in Canaan to claim the land? It's similar with us. From our position in salvation history, we can see all that has happened since the days of Isaac. So many threats to God's salvation plan overcome. So many promises kept. The blessing sustained generation after generation after generation. And not just sustained, but sent out, distributed, delivered to all nations through Jesus. God has proved himself to be the God described in Ephesians 1 verse 11. The one who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. But God's salvation plan has not yet been completed. That won't happen until Jesus returns to judge the world. Until then, we need to keep trusting that God will oversee his blessing. He'll continue to sustain it. On the global level, that will mean trusting God to oversee the spread of the gospel throughout all the earth. And on the personal level, it will mean each of us trusting God to keep us, to keep us following Jesus all the days of our lives. He can do it. He is the one who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. So if we return to the example of China in the early 1950s, the message of Genesis 25 would have brought real comfort and peace to God's people at that time. God was able to sustain his blessing. That's the message of Genesis 25 for the Chinese Christians in the early 1950s. God would be able to sustain his blessing in their land and in other lands around the world. He would be able to sustain his blessing to them personally, even with all the difficulties they faced. And if you know the history of Christianity in China since 1953, you'll know what God did. A conservative estimate of the number of Christians in China today is 60 million. The number of Christians multiplied by a factor of 60. 
Meanwhile, the population of China multiplied by a factor of three, unless I'm mistaken. That is how God showed his power to sustain his blessing in China. He is the one who works out all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. He may not always sustain his blessing in that kind of spectacular way, but he has the power to do it. And in that power, we find peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we see the vulnerability from our human perspective of your salvation plan in those early days, those days of transition from Abraham to Isaac, we see your power, your control. We see how you sustained your blessing, overcoming threats, keeping your promises. Father, help us to preach to ourselves how much more, how much more will you continue to do those things in our own day, on the global level and on the personal level. And we pray, Father, that we would find peace in your control of all things. In Jesus' name, amen.